Welcome to Could Be Pretty Cool News, the podcast where we dive into the exciting world of creative entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Casey, and together we'll embark on a journey to explore this dynamic ecosystem from multiple angles, including academia, research and data, community building, and compelling personal narratives from creative entrepreneurs themselves. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered as we uncover the stories and strategies behind building successful creative ventures. It's time to discover why the world of creative entrepreneurship could be pretty cool. Gen Z is the first generation to grow up with the internet, social media, and smartphones as part of their everyday lives. They're also the most diverse, educated, and socially conscious generation in history. They have a unique perspective on the world, and they're not afraid to express it through their creative outlets. Whether it's TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, Substack, Patreon, or any other platform, Gen Z is leading the way in producing original, authentic, and engaging content that attracts millions of followers and fans. But Gen Z is not just creating for fun. They're creating content for profit. They're leveraging their skills, passions, and personal brands to build businesses, careers, and communities in the creator economy. So how is Gen Z shaping this industry? And what are the opportunities and challenges they face as content creators and leaders? What can we learn from them as we navigate the changing landscape of digital media? Well, we explored these questions and more with our first guest, Courtney Nye. So the first thing, um, I'm going to have you just introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. My name is Courtney Nye. I'm the founder of Just Potty Post. I'm also a software engineer and content creator making dance tutorials. Courtney, this world of internet content creation, like I sound like an old lady already, but like this world (laughs) of content creation and developing apps and platforms. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got into this space? Absolutely. So pretty much I've been a dancer for, oh, I think about maybe 22 years now since I was four. And during the pandemic, I discovered K-pop dance. And so as I started learning more of the fun choreography, I also wanted to start creating content as well. And I didn't quite know where to start. So I was thinking, hey, why not create tutorials for these K-pop routines? These artists come out with songs almost like every few months. It's pretty often, but like there's a huge fan base for each group and they really want to learn the dances. And so being able to gear my tutorials more for beginners or those wanting to get better at dance, that's how I got started on TikTok. And so wanting to get more, gain more of a following, I started asking my fan base and audience, like what were they interested in learning? So that's how I started in terms of like that user generated content and From there, also in parallel, been working as a software engineer in the financial tech industry for about, I would say, almost five years now. So having that in parallel, you only have 24 hours in the day. So 
that's where I was like, okay, how can I make, how can I optimize this more? <laughs> and kind of that like engineering mindset. And so that's what drove me to think about how can I create content more su- sustainably, which is what is the mission of just Platypost. And so that's in the form of a web app currently in development as a mobile app. But the main goal is to empower content creators to schedule, repost content in a way that allows them to gain more time, but also be more efficient in terms of how they post and get the material or get their content out. That's so interesting. I gravitate towards stories of people who have a passion or just something they enjoy doing and somehow merge that with their profession. And the way that you did, I mean, that's such an interesting combination of interests, K-pop tutorials and (laughs) software engineering. So can you talk to us a little bit more about, you said you would ask your audiences, like, what do you want to learn? What did that teach you as far as asking your audiences specifically about the type of content that they wanted to see versus just like putting out whatever you felt like? Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of big learnings there. Because I would say I first started out with doing tutorials that were hands only, feet only, and just kind of highlight more of so isolations in dance movement. But I got to say huge thanks to my cousin who's currently in college. She keeps, I would say, keeps me current. (laughs) So she would send me different videos of other tutorials where people were doing it or doing the tutorial at 50% speed, so slower or 75% speed. So that helped me gain an idea of what what was helping. But then also I started to put a call to action at the end of my videos asking, asking viewers what tutorials they wanted to see. Or now my existing is follow plus comment for more counts tutorials. Because now I mainly do counts as I found that people, that helps them stay on time. I mean, when you think about it, it's like you're gathering data from your audience in order to turn that data into insights that you can then use to better grow your audience and better create the content that they want to see. Can you talk to us a little bit more about exactly what Just Potty Post does? Absolutely. So, yeah, starting with uh, just posting on TikTok. For that, I truly appreciate TikTok's editor. You can add text, you can add music. But then after that, it only goes on TikTok. So as a process, I would also have to download the video from TikTok, re-upload it to Instagram and YouTube, all with the captions, hashtags, tagging, etc. And so that really led me to thinking about, man, it would be really great to have one place just to upload my video, upload the caption, and have it post to all of the different channels that I needed it to go to. So that's really the essence of just Platypost now. It was really about being able to have that omnipresence on multiple social media channels, but also reuse or repost, I would say, any of the existing content that you have. Because in that case, I've got, I think I want to say over at least 200 tutorials now on TikTok but only maybe 80 of them have gone over to Instagram or YouTube. So so that's where I was like, okay, there's also value in being able to reuse what you have and without having to 
film it again or something. But yeah, it's really about the, the, the sustainability part as well. I mean, talk and content creation mm. is business for some people. And as a business, yeah. they need to optimize how they do business. And so I'm curious for you, like, how can people use your app? How can people find out about it? For the folks who are out there like, oh, yes, like my TikTok, I have deals or I'm trying to grow my audience or use this for connection. How can this help them? Absolutely. So for that specifically, I'm in the process of creating the mobile app. And so that way uh, it would allow for content creators on the go to be able to connect their social media accounts and from there. Uh, be able to establish workflows in a way that's like, all right, I would like to upload um, my existing content from TikTok to Instagram, transfer that caption over um, and all the other necessary data needed. Um, so there's that portion or uh, a use case that I ran into was I, I went to Seoul for two weeks and took dance classes to train um, and wasn't able to schedule my videos either. And so that was another thing where it's like you can schedule on Instagram, you can schedule on YouTube, um, but you can't schedule on TikTok. And that was my main platform of use. So for that, I also view it as this platform as a way for folks to market themselves more, promote their personal brand, even small businesses as well, just to really be able to share their content a lot easier on multiple platforms. I mean, I think that's like all of the things that's so important with having to build a platform, having to create content for a platform. It sounds like for you, the core is your audience, right? Like you are doing this for your fans and for your audience, which is super endearing. Speaking of oh, maybe your audience, but people who will be interested in using your platform, what types of reporting or analytics would someone using your platform be able to see? One of the things we love talking about on this show is data. We want people to make informed decisions. We want people to be empowered to use data about the things that they're creating to streamline and, and say, oh, they did not watch that one at all. Let's not do this content again, or let's try it at a different time. So what types of reporting out can people expect on Just Plotty Post? Absolutely. Great question. And so I feel like that's where still in this development phase, there's a lot of opportunity to know what exactly is useful for users, whether it's viewing a dashboard of how many likes, followers, comments that they have across all of their accounts. And so I would say for user analytics or specifically content creation and posting, I would definitely be able to share with the user how many times they're posting a day, how often. And I think that's where still with this app being in the development phase, I'd really like to ask content creators as well what exactly they would find useful. So that's where I was like, it's kind of a two-way street at the moment rather than like, okay, we have all of this out for you. We love that. We love almost being an insider into your development yeah. <laughs> process. Like oh, we appreciate you for letting us kind of see the works in progress and the things that are happening. So with all of the things that you do, you do a lot. Do you have any sort of hopes like three years from now, five years from now, both with the Just Plotty Post platform and with your own platform as a content creator? Or are you kind of just like going with the flow right now? 
Yeah, so definitely, of course, a goal this year is to get the app built and launched. I look at it as like the initial kickoff for Just Platypus, because then after that, it's mainly in terms of marketing, being able to see what content creators find more useful, add any of those features in, also promote it as well as a content creator. So I feel like that's where it kind of goes hand in hand in terms of me building, continuing to build out both my following and brand as a content creator, and then also promote just Platypost as well. So I'd say that's kind of in the immediate uh, year. And then, of course, after that, being able to uh, help maybe large enterprises um, in terms of having multiple social media profiles um, and mainly go from there. Live theater is one of the oldest and most powerful forms of storytelling, but it is also one of the most challenged by the digital revolution. How can theater survive and thrive in the age of Netflix, TikTok, and even podcasts? How can the theater adapt to the changing needs and expectations of audiences and artists? If you are a theater professional of any kind, then you already know this is not an easy or lucrative career choice. It takes passion, dedication, and creativity to make a living out of putting on shows, especially in a competitive and uncertain market. In this next conversation with Sawyer Estes, co-founder of Vernell and Sear Theater Company, we learn more about his journey as a theater leader, how he copes with the challenges and opportunities of the creator economy, and how he envisions his role and potential in the theater both now and in the future. I'm Sawyer Estes. I am co-founder, writer, director at Vernal and Sear Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. We are company in residence at Windmill Arts Center in East Point. Let's see, I'm from the Panhandle of Texas. So in high school, I got into the theater very randomly. I was a basketball player and I was working the concession stand as part of my duties when I was on junior varsity as a freshman. I'd like work a concession stand game. So I was on the concession stand and there were theater auditions happening in the room next to me. And this guy was like, hey, I need a young kid to play the lead in this show. Have you ever acted before? And I said, no, but I'll go across and just do it as a joke. And then I ended up getting the role and then I fell in love with the theater and acted all through high school. I'd always been predisposed to writing my entire life. I knew that I probably wanted to write in some form, but I never knew what form that might be. I knew I had a sense that maybe I would be a journalist or maybe I would write novels or an essayist or something, but I didn't know. And so then when I got into acting in high school, I started to maybe find a form, like maybe I would write plays. And so then I went to the University of Houston to study and then went, immediately went to New York. So then I was in New York City. I produced one play and I learned a lot and I learned, well, maybe I'm not just a writer. Maybe I'm also a director. I hated New York. I didn't have a great time doing that. It was also really expensive. Like my dreams were quickly extinguished, kind of. 
of like what I was going to be in New York. So all that to say, like, I didn't think I was going to start a theater company. I thought I was going to go to New York and be this writer and that people would be like, oh, you're so incredibly talented and brilliant and we'll do your work and you'll be success really early on and yada yada. Didn't work out that way. Moved to really quickly after 10 months, moved to Atlanta, having never visited Atlanta with Aaron Boswell, who's now my wife. She's an actor we met in New York, essentially. And so we moved to Atlanta. We spent a year trying to do a production. No one wanted to do a production with us because we didn't really have space. We wanted to do it in a living room and no one was doing theater like that in Atlanta at the time, really. And everyone was like, these people are sketchy. Like, what are we gonna, we're gonna make a theater in a living room? That's so weird. And, and especially because it was a more stylized piece by Mac Wellman that we were thinking about and everyone was like, eh. well, eventually we found people that wanted to do that production. And that was Cat Barnes from just random channels. We met Cat Barnes, Aaron O'Connor, Lindsay Sharpless, and then Aaron Boswell and myself. And so we just made this one play that we wanted to make and no one had ever seen anyone else work. Aaron Boswell, my wife, I'd never seen her act to this time we just met in New York and I knew she was an actor and I had never directed anything I'd only seen it and so this was the first time it wasn't a piece that I'd written it was just he's gonna direct it these people are gonna act in it and we're gonna make a play and we have no idea what we're doing but we're gonna just make a play and we'll call it this name when I from this Beckett short story that I'd when I was in New York living I was riding the subway one night and I was reading this Beckett short story and I found this line that had Vernal and Sear in it. And I thought that kind of sums up my, essentially up to this point, my like, artistic ethos and kind of things that I'm thinking about of the sacred and the profane and kind of making a work that is non-didactic and is just doesn't take a position and is kind of holding these two polarities like in equal measure. So we named the company Vernal and Sear, and we made this first play just thinking that it was gonna be the one thing, and then it kind of just had incredible buzz. It was failure for most of the night, for most of the run, and then the last night, it just blew up, and we were like stuffing people into this little black box at Rob Miles Studio. It's supposed to hold 50, and we stuffed 120 people in it or something. People were standing and on cushions, and it just kind of had great energy around the show. So then we were like, well, we gotta make another one. And then we just made another one, another, and so the roles started to become more defined. And so I guess that's a very long-winded, very long-winded way of, of how I came to have a theater company and be the, the de facto artistic director of this theater company in Atlanta. Now I'm in this very collaborative collective that's about to do our 10th show. I Thing. Obviously, we like the economic kind of crisis of theater. It's always on the verge of collapse, and everyone's like, oh, the theater's dead or it's dying. And that's this kind of trope that I've known as long as I've been making theater that, that's just been this kind of thing that everyone says. I think that for us, the irony, you see all these theaters closing. There's obviously such a lack of support for arts in general in the United States. For us, we're a bit immune to it i've kind of seen us up to this point and i don't know if this will always be that way but we're kind of more like a punk band or a rock and roll band or whatever you want to say like we just make work and we try to make enough to do it again as a company and then if we're able to put a little a couple hundred bucks in our pockets that's great so in a way it's like 
we don't necessarily want that. It's not ideal. I want artists to be paid. I'd love to be paid as an artist. We would love to see like this country shift in, in that way. Certainly we'd like to see more, more increase in our audience. We have a very strong following. I'd say we're probably about like 50% of what some of these other theaters at, much, at, at a higher tier are in Atlanta based on like what I've learned. And we do that with no marketing budget, zero dollars. It's all word of mouth. It's all just over time what we've done. But of course we'd like to, I'd like to sell out every show. I think the quality of our work, to say this as humbly as I can say it without knowing what I'm about to say, but the quality is as such that I think we should be selling out every show in a city this size. I shouldn't go, like we sell out opening night, but I shouldn't go, it shouldn't take till weekend two or weekend three to start having to turn people away. I wish we were selling out right at the get-go and that would be just a, a big desire for us. That said, outside of the company, I would love for the artists that are in the company to have opportunities to grow outside of the company as individuals as well. Being an artist, I think, in the United States is incredibly difficult, it's unrewarding. You want validation, you're not probably going to receive validation. You do it because you have to do it and, and because, yeah, if you don't, no one else will kind of thing. There's no money in it when you are with a company for seven years with people that were just kind of thrown together and you're married to them now and they're beautiful and they're awesome and they bring different things to the process and you learn from them, but you're married to them and they also bring the other things that are difficult about themselves and you bring the things that are difficult about yourself and you're navigating through that while you're trying to make really difficult work. I guess being aware of those challenges, but what the company has allowed me to do and where I would encourage more companies to come together and form as collectives is that it's allowed me like seven or eight years of owning my craft. And it's given me the space and the time and the resources to own my craft in a way where I never would have if I was a freelance artist trying to work. If I was doing that and I never formed this company, I would be at least five years behind where I am now, having been able to do it. And just to have that that growth and now to be able to have these resources to make a, a very grand idea come to fruition. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Until next time, we encourage you to continue nurturing your process. Farewell, and may all of your creative endeavors flourish. Could Be Pretty Cool News is a Could Be Pretty Cool original production that was workshopped as a part of the 2023 Google News Initiative pre-launch lab. This episode was edited by Trinity Jackson. Our executive producer and host is Casey Willis, and our production coordinator is Liz Moore. The original theme music was composed by Camille Stennis, and our cover art was designed by Aaliyah Johnson. Special thanks to our guests. To find out more about them, you can visit our newsletter at couldbeprettycoolnews.substack.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>